Hey, good morning again. We are so glad that you're joining us. And, and maybe this is the first time that you've, you've been a part of a St. Mark worship service in any way, shape, or form. Uh, if that's the case, thank you especially for, for tuning in with us and being with us this morning. My name is Matt, I'm the pastor here at St. Mark. And again, I couldn't be more delighted than to have you joining us. We are, we are this morning continuing a conversation that we've had for several weeks at St. Mark, uh, where we are looking at Jesus's longest and most epic sermon that he's ever preached, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus addresses a little bit of everything. He talks about relationships, he talks about anger, he talks about finances. And today, we, we happen to find ourselves zooming in on the section of the teaching where Jesus is talking about charity and giving and kindness to our neighbors in need. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, oh great, this is the last message I need. Uh, the world is falling apart. I'm worried about money. My 401k is disintegrating. The stock market is crashing. The price of oil is tanking. So unless this sermon is about somebody being generous to me, I want nothing to do with it. I get that. But honestly, I think that these words of Jesus are perfect for a moment like this. We find ourselves in a season economically, culturally, emotionally, as a people, where we are collectively in great need. And the people around you are hurting. That uh, They are hurting in, in significant ways. And throughout history, it has, been, it has been the people of God, it has been the people of Jesus who have stepped up, and when the rest of the world has said, hey, look, things are so bad, we, we, we can only take care of ourselves, it's been the people of Jesus who have stepped up and said, we can take care of others. This moment really is an incredible opportunity for the church. Look, I get that things are really dark and uncertain right now, but light shines the brightest in darkness which means when it's dark like it is today, it is our time to shine. So I wanna start with a question for you. What do you do when you're confronted with the fact that someone near you, call them a neighbor, has a need? Do you ignore it? Do you kind of subtly recognize it, just give them the knowing nod? Must be rough. Uh, do you give them some resource? Do you give them some cash to spend or a couch to crash on? Uh, what do you tend to do? You see, there, there's something in, in just about all of us that recognizes that when someone near us is, need, is in need, we, we should do something good. We kind of instinctively know that we should do good when faced with the need of our neighbor, which is why we're so collectively repulsed when we see someone choosing not to do that, especially so-called religious people. There was a church that made the news uh, a couple of years by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Uh, very often, our motivation for doing good, being generous and kind in the face of our neighbor's need, is that we might be perceived as good. Uh, sociologists will tell you that, that the threat of being perceived as a bad person is, is a profound motivator for human beings. We don't want to be thought of as bad people. In the 1980s, uh, election officials were bemoaning the low turnout in elections, and they ascribed it to the fact that there was very little social pressure 
to vote because it's such a private and personal act. There was no way to know that your coworker went to the polls before showing up at work, and, and there was, there was no, nothing to keep you from lying and saying, oh yeah, I totally voted, I totally voted today. And so what did they do? Well, it's really simple, actually. They created that famous little sticker that you receive. They created that sticker, and they gave it to every single person who went to the polls. And now there was this social marker that said, I take my vocation as citizen seriously, and so should you. And wouldn't you know it, that almost immediately, engagement in elections went up. But don't be deceived. It wasn't because people all of a sudden had this passion for voting. It was because they wanted to be perceived as people who were passionate about voting and being a responsible citizen. When you, when you crack open our hearts, what you often see is that our hunger for righteousness, for good things, is often a hunger to be seen as righteous by others. Now, you might say, what's wrong with that? Now, I would say lots of things. Uh, first, it's disingenuous. What you give to someone else as compassion for them is actually just insecurity about yourself. Also, it's, uh, it's self-serving. You're not giving to that other person to actually help them. You're giving to them and, in essence, using them to, to help yourself and to prop up your own ego. But, but it's Jesus who gives us the biggest reason why this motivation is not helpful or holy, uh, in particular for people of faith. He, he calls it out for what it is. He, he says it's idolatry. If you are so concerned about the... the impression that you make in the hearts of others, that that's the driver to do good, he says you have a different master than God. And the heart can only have one master. You can't serve the, the, the impression you make among your neighbors and your God. And so if the motivation for you is not to be seen as a bad person, you have an idol in your life. That's ultimately Jesus's take. And so he says, look, you can do good in order to be perceived as a good person, but understand that that, that gets you nowhere. It does no good in the eyes of God. So that's the first motivation we often have. We do good and we respond to the need of others in order to be perceived as a good person. Um, oftentimes for religious people, however, there's a, there's a different motivation that's also at work. It's not so much the desire to be good in the eyes of others, although that's an influence. Often, uh, people of faith will recognize this, and they'll overcorrect. And they'll say, well, rather than trying to be good in the eyes of others for the sake of myself, I will do good and respond to the needs of others in order to please God, in order to satisfy and impress Him. Now, this is grounded in two big misconceptions. First, uh, the idea that God is somehow lacking, that he is in desperate need of your good works. He's in desperate need of you to be kind and generous to a neighbor. The image is that of God the Father sitting up in heaven with sad music playing in the background, and he's just waiting for you to recognize the need of your coworker who's hurting. And when you walk past her and ignore her, he bursts into tears, and the Holy Spirit has to come over and comfort him and say, it's going to be okay. He'll figure it out someday. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening at all. God lacks nothing. He does not need your good. He just commands it. And that's a very different thing. The second misconception is that my being good somehow sways God. 
uh, that when I do good, it somehow proves my devotion. It convinces God to keep me on the divine payroll, so to speak, or maybe even give me a raise. And yet scripture bends over backward to tell us the opposite, to tell us that, that you can't possibly do good enough in order to please God or earn more favor from God. And it's not because God is mean, but because he is holy and we are not. And the gap between God's holiness and our humanity is massive. It's insurmountable. It's wider than all 26 lanes of I-10 traffic. You can't be good enough for God at all. And yet that doesn't keep us from trying, right? We do something good and we, we feel a sense of like spiritual superiority. Like, man, I've, I've really made it now and I've really probably impressed him. And yet if you, if you pause to think about how, how dysfunctional that is, it, it, it'll hit you and you'll think, why, why do I ever think that way? For example, put it in these terms. Imagine that you have a young child, a, a six-year-old daughter, and she's, she's in kindergarten. And one day she comes home from kindergarten, she comes running off the bus with a giant smile on her face, and she says, Daddy, Daddy, I was such a good girl at school today. I was nice to my teacher, and I helped my friends, and I made this. And she hands you a piece of construction paper covered with macaroni and green marker. And a smile comes across your face, and you say, Sweetheart, what got into you? This is great, I love all those things. What got into you? And your six-year-old looks at you and she says, I just want you to love me more. Now, if that happened, your heart would instantly break. What a terrible weight for a small child to carry, to think that they somehow have to earn and increase the love of their parent through their performance. If your child said that to you, you would immediately sweep her up into your lap and you would say, oh, sweetheart, there is nothing you can do to make me love you more or make me love you less. I am so glad for all the good things that you did. But understand that I loved you before you got on the bus this morning. And nothing you did at school is going to change that. I love you because I love you because I love you. And friends, the same is true with the love of God. He loved you before you got on the bus. And he is not impressed nor does he need your macaroni art. So where does that leave us? If, if the motivation for, for doing good isn't to somehow prop up ourselves or to please or satisfy or increase the love of God, then what is it? Why should we respond to the needs of our neighbor? Why? Well, the answer, the answer is so obvious and so simple that you might be tempted to reach through this camera and slap me in the face. But I'm going to take the risk. Here's why. You should respond to the need of your neighbor with kindness and generosity and sacrifice simply for the good of your neighbor. That's it. Not because it gets you anything, not because it earns any favor with God, but we respond to the need of our neighbor because our neighbor is in need. And if the life of Jesus is instructive at all, that's, that's what we see him doing. He responds to the need of all of his neighbors, you and me, through sacrifice. And not because it's, it's somehow going to earn him a greater standing in our eyes. He doesn't need that. Not, not because we've begged him to. He just saw our need for forgiveness. And he responded. So, so why should you give to the man asking for something on the side of the road? 
even though you don't know what his, his ultimate problems are, even though, even though you don't know how he's going to utilize it, why might you give to the man on the side of the road? Because he needs, and you have. Why would you help the, the single mom, co-worker, who is, work, who is earning an hourly wage, who right now is without work and without pay? Why, why would you get her a gift card? Why would you hand some cash to her? Why would you do that? Because she needs, and you have. Why would you send an encouraging note to your brother-in-law who is feeling overwhelmed at all this happening in the world? Because he needs, and you have. When the kids finally, finally go back to school, why would you send a couple extra of the good snacks in their lunchbox to share at the lunch table, even though they're not supposed to, with the other kids who don't have as cool of a pantry as you do? Why would you do that? Because they need and you have. That's it. It's so simple, but that's the motivation. We seek to love and serve our neighbor because our neighbor has needs. Not for us, not for him, but for them. Jesus continues, picking up at verse, uh, verse 3, he says this. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, don't think that Jesus is being literal here, that, that any generosity, any charity, any kindness needs to be completely anonymous in order to be legitimate. Um, but it does offer us a good heart check. Would you be kind and generous and charitable if you knew no one was looking? If you knew no one would thank you, if you knew no one would recognize it, would you still do it? That's a good heart check, isn't it? Or are you simply doing it so that, so that you can go on Instagram later and, uh, and do a humble brag? You know what a humble brag is, right? It's, it's self-congratulation in disguise. It's where you post a picture of your empty hand where there'd usually be a cup of coffee and you say, no coffee for me this morning because I gave $5 to my homeless friend, made his day, made mine more, hashtag blessed. That's a humble brag. That's a humble brag. Would you do it if no one appreciated it or saw it? And the answer to that unveils your heart. Now, if, if you take this seriously, what you recognize is that there is a bit of risk in this. To respond to the needs of your neighbor as the needs of your neighbor present themselves with, with nothing really in it for you necessarily and certainly nothing to gain from God, uh, there is risk in this. You could very well give and go without yourself. That could happen. You could sacrifice and be generous and be taken advantage of. That, that happens as well. You could give and end up in need yourself. That, that's an understandable fear, especially in a season like this where everybody's struggling, just a little bit at least. But Jesus in this text, he responds to that fear by twice saying, your Father in heaven will reward you. Your Father in heaven will reward you. Now, it's easy to be con confused here. Jesus is not saying that you should be generous in order to receive a reward. He's saying that God makes it safe for you to give to others, to meet the needs of others, because God promises to, to backfill you with blessings because he's constantly blessing you. He's constantly providing for you. God is not going to let the command and the call for his people to love to undo and destroy his people. Fulfilling this command to love will cost you. 
It may temporarily hurt you, but God will not let any ultimate damage be done to you. At the very least, in the very end, he will raise you from the dead if your generosity drives you to the grave. That is his promise. And we have to hold on to that promise that God rewards his people each and every day as an opportunity to help another person is put in front of us. The people of of God through Jesus Christ should walk around with this attitude uh, kind of brimming at the surface, an attitude that says, God's got me so I can help them. God's got me so I can help them. Let me say it one more time. God's got me so I can help them. He's made it safe for you to be generous and to give and to meet the needs of others. He has. And if you're, if you're doubting that guarantee, then, then all you have to do is look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who, who not too long after preaching and teaching these words, would himself live them out perfectly. He, he would give himself in the greatest act of, of love and kindness that the world has ever known. I mentioned earlier that he saw your need and he saw my need. And and do you know what our need is? Our need is for someone to rescue us from the punishment that we deserve for failing to love perfectly. Our need is for someone to forgive us, to earn forgiveness for us, for only ever loving with strings attached in some way, shape, or form. We need someone who can rescue us from that punishment. We need someone who, who can come and not just be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, but also, also be the perfect replacement for our selfishness, who can live beautifully, who can love unconditionally, who can, who can walk through this world and fulfill the Father's every demand for love. And then, by simply having faith in that person, Jesus Christ, give to us his goodness to wear as our own so that we can walk around saying, I am not perfect, I don't love rightly, but I am loved perfectly and I am covered in the perfection of Jesus. I am a child of God. That's what we need. And that's what Jesus, without us asking or demanding, that's what Jesus has given to us. You are a child of God with everything that that brings to the table for you. It is now safe to sacrifice for others because Jesus Christ has sacrificed for you. Let me say that again. It is safe to sacrifice for others because Jesus Christ has sacrificed for you and made you, you, a member of God's family. God the Father, through the work of his son Jesus Christ, has made you his child, which means that God loves you before you get on the bus, so to speak. And there's nothing you can do while you're away to make him love you less or more. So now you're free to do whatever love demands because Christ has fulfilled all the demands of love and made you God's child. Uh, the story is told about the, um, the ancient king of Siam. Uh, we know it as Thailand today. When the king had an enemy that he wanted to destroy, rather than attack the enemy, he would give a gift to the enemy. In fact, he would give a white albino elephant, which is strange, but, but in that time and in that culture, they were considered obviously incredibly rare and incredibly valuable. 
And so he'd give this gift anonymously to his enemy, and his enemy would have, have no choice but to accept it because it was so rare and so valuable and even considered divine. The enemy would have to accept it. And these elephants, they were, they were of course valuable, but they were also incredibly costly because they were sickly. And so over the course of time, the enemy would become so distracted and depleted in caring for this elephant that it would have no resources or energy left to defend itself. You see, what the king of Siam knew about human beings is that sometimes in order to take the life out of a man, you don't have to hurt him. You just have to bless him and he'll hurt himself. You know, some of us, we, we have no capacity for generosity, not because we're poor, but because we are so busy trying to stay rich and to feel secure. We are so busy keeping some elephants of our own alive. And maybe, maybe one of the ways that God is going to redeem this, this difficult season we find ourselves in is, is by letting some of your elephants die so that your perspective is restored and you can focus on the things that matter. What do you do when confronted with the need of your neighbor? Because it's everywhere right now. It's everywhere. And this is our opportunity, church. Why do you do what you do when confronted with the needs of your neighbor? Why? May you give. But, but not, not so that you get anything, uh, certainly not to please God, but simply because your neighbor needs I know it's dark out there, but the light shines brightest in the darkness, and it's our time to shine.